Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be with you again today, Ben. How are you? I'm doing great, John. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So, Ben, during our, um, I guess it was a five-part series on um, Bible blunders and church splits, uh, we went through lots of different uh, church doctrines and we tried to point out how, why the church has varying um, beliefs on all these different issues, important issues, and um, how those differences have uh, divided the church. And we kind of like rapid fire went through a whole bunch of uh, different church doctrines, but um, we wanted to take some time to um, take a little bit of a deeper dive into some of these individual issues. Um, There's so much more to get into, and some of them are just... Uh, completely fascinating. So the one we wanted to talk about today has to do with the spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are something that is laid out in the Bible, um, initially by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. And the church, like I said, is divided over this. Uh, Many in the church um, believe that no, spiritual gifts are no longer a thing. It's like the Holy Spirit is not working in that way in our modern era. It was only in the apostolic era, and we can no longer expect to see these um, supernatural occurrences. Whereas the um, Charismatics and Pentecostals of the world will say, well, why is that? There's nothing that ever says um, they will go away, and they and we should have every expectation that they will continue. The two different views are called the um, secession view or uh, secessionationism. I think that's how you say it, Ben. And um, that's the view that the Reformed Church has, the church that I grew up in. Um, And it basically, like I said, it says, no, this is no longer happening. And the Pentecostal and Charismatic viewpoint is called the continuation view or continuationism. So this is 1 Corinthians 12. This is the Apostle Paul writing. This is a genuine letter of Paul. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were enticed and led astray to idols that could not speak. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Let Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given the Spirit of utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the discernment of spirits. To another, various kind of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same Spirit who allots to each one individually as the Spirit chooses. Then he goes on to talk about how um, the church is one body with many members. So he equates people to, well, a body has a hand and it has arms. Uh, but it all belongs to the same body. So anything that happens to one happens to the other, and and um, you, we should um, grieve with each other, etc. 
So that's where it very basically lays this out. And then we see in the book of Acts, which is written after the letters of Paul, talking about Pentecost um, after Jesus had already ascended into heaven and and, um, the Holy Spirit was um, moving within the uh, apostolic community and the disciples were able to speak in tongues and do all sorts of other uh, miraculous um, supernatural type deeds. I mean, I think the first comment that uh, comes to me is just to differentiate between um, the Pentecost and Acts and what Paul was talking about in Corinthians um, in tongues. It seems to me, um, and I've read this from other scholars too, that they're uh, very different usage. In Pentecost, it was um, real, actual languages so that people who were not able to communicate were able to communicate supernaturally, um, whereas in the it's like a spiritual practice in worship, it seems, the speaking of tongues. Um, yeah, when uh, I was growing up, the way, um, you know, like I said, our church, we didn't believe in the speaking of tongues, and we thought when other churches were doing this that they were just babbling nonsense. And I think that um, that contradiction or that um, problem actually stems from the Bible, because like you said, yes, in Pentecost, it was a miracle where they had lots of people from foreign lands that didn't all speak the same language. So there was a miracle where they could all understand each other, um, or the miracle was they could actually speak in their language. And uh, it was kind of a reversal of the Tower of Babel. And um, But what you read in what you read from Paul in 1 Corinthians, he actually talks about how you're uttering a language that only God understands, and, um, and you're speaking like the mysteries of God. And that is exactly what the way I have understood, like the more charismatic understanding of people that speak in tongues today. Yeah, I would be curious. I mean, this is obviously, I mean, I think part of what we want to ask is, like, was there an expectation of these, like, supernatural gifts um, through the Spirit? And it seems that that's clearly what's being talked about. I mean, it's not even just the speaker, um, but also the interpreter, um, are able to act because of the empowerment of the Spirit. Um, so that's very interesting, I think, in Corinthians. I think that is like what we see in charismatic practice today, where tongues is part of the worship. Um, it's integrated into the services of when believers are gathering. Um, and it's so popular and um, has become like a, a status for spirituality for the Corinthians that it's like threatening to create great disorder in the gathering of believers too. And so Paul has to kind of like come in and rein in um, this chaotic practice. But you can see like the appeal of people saying like, uh, and you see this today, like I'm marked by the baptism of the spirit or I'm anointed and that's where I get my authority or um, I'm spirit dwelled. Um, spirit-filled churches. Like, this is like the language of Pentecostalism even today. Um, and so you really see, like, the pools that they were drawing on, because I, I know a lot of people um, who believe the spiritual gifts ceased would, like, go to Acts and say, like, look, this is not what's happening today. They're speaking real languages. And then people are translating so that people who didn't understand the languages that were being spoke would be able to understand actual languages, um, and Pentecostals would say, no, it's talking about the languages of angels or, you know, uh, language only God understands. And they would turn to Corinthians. So once again, everybody is sort of right and everybody's drawing on their own. I mean, Acts doesn't say that the gifts are going to cease, but they're right in at least saying this practice seems different than what they're talking about in Acts. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the two major um, viewpoints, the cessation view and the um, continuation view. And I think both are problematic uh, because, like, there are no spiritual gifts now. I mean, there are no miracles happening. There are no healings happening. The speaking in tongues that we see, like, if you if you uh, have a linguistics expert analyze the speaking in tongues, they'll say, no, this is just uh, yammering. It's not. Um, there's no. It's not possible. This could actually be a real language. It, it would be an incredibly hard thing to just completely invent a fictional language, and that's why you see when you hear people speaking in tongues, I'm not going to do an impression of it now, Ben, but it is not an actual uh, miraculous thing happening. It's pretty obvious to see. So I think the reformers like Calvin 
um, they basically said, yeah, we're not seeing this kind of stuff anymore. And then they developed a doctrine around this, this uh, cessation doctrine that says, yeah, it's just not happening anymore. And I think the main reason is because they literally just weren't seeing it. And um, the other reason is, you know, it's once you say, once you open the door to these spiritual gifts, you could literally have anybody walk into a church and claim, hey, I have the gift of prophecy and here's my um, prophetic knowledge that you need to follow. And um, it's really hard to police. And I think that's what um, Calvin and some of the reformers were dealing with because they were t- they were dealing with the claims from Roman Catholics who were talking about miracles and the Virgin Mary appearing and things like this. And I think it's a lot easier just to say like, no, 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 that's all bullshit and n- none of this happens anymore. So I think it's, I think a lot of the cessationism just came out of practicality. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you're faced with two problems, like, uh, as a Christian. So one, like the expectation of the text is not that these gifts are going to pass away. I think that's a reading, um, that like you said, is informed by like historical reality. Um, and so reading the text, you would expect like these gifts would be happening. And then the second problem you have is like, well, these gifts are not happening. So what does that mean? And so you get this interpretation that, no, the gifts are going to pass away. It's only love that's going to endure. He says, like, prophecy will cease. Uh, Tongues will pass away. I mean, that's really an abuse of the context of what Paul is saying, um, or if Paul even wrote that that chapter, which maybe we'll talk a little bit about later. There were Christians, even in really early Christianity, that had started saying the fulfillment of the Spirit and is going to manifest itself in different ways. Like, we shouldn't necessarily expect these gifts of power. Um, and so you already could see that in really early Christianity, um, that idea starting to uh, percolate as they were, like, not seeing these miraculous. But then even up till, like, um, the Middle Ages, you have all these apocryphal, like, extra-biblical stories about saints fighting dragons and going on these quests and magical things. Um One of the other fascinating aspects is how is magic tied into Christian practice anyway? And is this kind of stuff like just a carryover from, you know, the magical miracles of Jesus, the sort of like these practices exist in other religions too, like tongues exist in other religions. Um, It's just a practice that happens in different religions. There's charismatic wings of like every major religion um, that do this kind of stuff. They have miraculous healings. They speak in tongues. They like have the same manifestations that happen in charismatic Christianity. You mentioned um, quickly 1 Corinthians 13, and I wanted to talk about that because when I look up um, secessionist um, point of view and I, I read like what what various uh, church leaders say about it, I actually don't see many people using 1 Corinthians 13. And you would you would think, because it talks about um, where there are um, gifts, they will cease. And uh, but, I, but honestly, they don't really use that that often. But it is used for that. And I think it's important to talk about it, because 1 Corinthians 13 is very unusual. It's a very poetic... Um, passage. I memorized it. I had to memorize it as a kid. We all did. And um, But if you read 1 Corinthians 12, it doesn't seem to flow at all into 1 Corinthians 13. So many scholars have come to believe that 1 Corinthians 13 is an interpolation added later or potentially taken from Paul's work from something else and then inserted into this section almost as a counter to, because you have in chapter 12 all this talk about um, the spiritual gifts. And then right after 1 Corinthians 13 says, um, they will cease. Now, it, it's not super clear in 1 Corinthians 13 that Paul is saying they will cease soon. Because to me, if you read it, it almost seems like what 1 Corinthians 13 is saying is that um, the end will come and then everything will be restored and it will cease along with everything else will cease. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think... It seems pretty convincing um, to a lot of scholars that uh, Paul did not write First uh, Corinthians thirteen, the uh, which again is like an extremely beautiful passage of scripture. It's got the definition of love, um, even though we always quote it out of context. 
<laughs> and with that outside the context Paul really um, was intending it, uh, I think Paul, I think the author of First Corinthians thirteen um, was in within the spirit of Paul in expecting though that um, the end was coming. I mean, that's the reason Paul was like, don't get hung up on these spiritual gifts as if we're in, um, we're living in our new resurrected bodies already, because we're not, we're, that's coming. Um, don't get hung up on these spiritual gifts as though Christ has already returned, or you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Like, um, you know, he wants to give them the expectation of the permanent things, the new creation, and um, so the gifts are just a manifestation of that new creation. So I think that, um, again, I don't think the ceasing of the gifts from the earth was a concern that Paul had because Paul didn't think the earth was going to go on very long. It's either a later interpolation um, to address the fact that the return of Christ didn't happen immediately or to address the fact that these gifts were already like not having the prominence that they, they did, although I, I find that a little bit less convincing. But yeah, it's very interesting. I think the this whole idea um, is caught up in Paul's theology of the time between Christ's death and resurrection and Christ's return, and it being a small window of time where... Uh, all of the sort of like natural laws were not really in effect as we were just waiting for the end to come. Yeah. And if it seems like we're harping on this point, because we just did a series on uh, the end times and Paul's view of the end times. And um, the reason that this is going to come up a lot on this show, anytime we're talking about the New Testament is because Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And most of the New Testament is focused on this like Ben said, this short period of time between the resurrection of Jesus and his second coming that they believed was going to happen during their lifetime. And you have to look at that, you have to understand that concept to hear anything else they're teaching. So when we talk about cessationism, it's like, well, Paul is not talking about anything about spiritual gifts ceasing because he's the last thing in the world that he's doing is talking about how the Christian church will go on for the next several thousand years. Uh, because he thought the end of the end of the world was coming any day, um, but if we're going to um, look at interpolations, it's like this is one that saddens me a little bit because I like First Corinthians thirteen. I memorized it, like I said, and um, it's all about like you know loving your your brethren, and I think it's a uh, generally a very positive uh, passage. Um, but yeah, it if part of some of the reason that. Um, uh, scholars think it may be an interpolation is um, the writing style completely changes between uh, chapter 12 and chapter 13. You have it going from the uh, second person to the first person, which is odd. And if you read uh, chapter 12, it flows very nicely into chapter 14. Um, so that, those are some of the reasons. And, and um, if you're really interested in it, there's a lot of information out there about this and um, why scholars have come to believe that. But um, I personally think even it's it's almost an irrelevant point because even if it's not an interpolation, I don't think First Corinthians thirteen actually gets uh, secessionists out of the problem like we were talking about. Yeah, um, I just want to read one quote because I think it sort of sets the context, and I guess like my comment would just be that, um, you know, on the one hand, Paul was thinking. Um, we were that Christians are living in the end times and waiting for Christ. And on the other hand, he's a Hellenized Jew who is writing in the context of a um, polytheistic worldview that's around him where other gods, you, and you see this in the New Testament where Paul confronts uh, false gods and other gods, are like a real and present problem for the early church. And this belief in... Um, spiritual powers you could see as a counterweight to that belief in like pagan powers. And so I'm just going to read a real quick quote from uh, Paula Friedrichsen, who's like one of my favorite uh, scholars that I've gotten into recently. Um, she says, indeed, there are many gods and many lords, Paul writes in his community to his community in Corinth. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6. Of course, Paul and Paul's pagan assemblies had then to cope with the anger of these lower gods who lashed back. But they were fortified by Holy Spirit, 
communicated to them through immersion into Christ's death and resurrection, Romans 8, 9 through 17. These committed pagans, like Paul himself, were accordingly enabled by that spirit to utter prophecies, to speak in tongues, to heal, and to discern between spirits, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11. Validated in their apocalyptic convictions by these very charismata, with confidence or steadfastness, they awaited Christ's imminent return, his defeat of those hostile powers, the transformation of the quick and the dead, and the redemption of creation, including perhaps of their former gods, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, and Romans 8, 22. Paul's view reflects a worldview where they believed, and Paul explicitly says this, that he believes that Satan is a power in the earth, um, where there are pagan gods that hold power, and so you would expect um, believers in the resurrected Christ to also be able to display powers. The One of the criticisms that uh, charismatics have on um, like a more of a Reformed or traditional Orthodox church is that, oh, you guys are spiritually dead, and um, that that kind of hits home a little bit too. I had a pastor um, that actually told me, oh no, you can't expect God to answer prayer. And I was like, well, I don't understand that. We're supposed to pray. And he said, yeah, you, you have to pray because you're commanded to, but God doesn't intercede supernaturally anymore. So, and if you think about it, yeah, like when you're asking someone is sick in your family and you're praying that they get better, what are you asking for? You're asking for like a supernatural intervention. And a secessionist basically says, no, that doesn't happen anymore. So the whole, what does, what does it mean to even pray? What does it mean to try to um, lobby God, you know, for your cause? So you can understand why a Pentecostal may say, well, you guys are spiritually dead. Now on the flip side, we would say, yeah, but you guys are faking it, you know, like you're either faking it or you're deluded. It's either a, it's either a delusion or you're um, making it up because you're not actually healing anybody. You're not um, raising anyone from the dead. You're not prophesying. Um, These are all just a, like a um, theatrical um, act that you're going through. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard to be, like, overly critical of the charismatic practices, even though we know that they're, like, not genuine healings. I mean, like, I think, like, on the one hand, we should be critical. There's, it's, like, extremely damaging for people to have false hope that, like, their children are going to be raised from the dead or that someone who is terminally ill will, like, recover from their illness um, supernaturally. Um, I think that like in some ways that's a really damaging belief and, um, it doesn't align obviously with reality at the same time. I think like it's just an exaggerated version of the belief that a lot of religious people have anyway, where those things could happen. They just don't. So it's, it's like complicated. I mean, yeah, I don't want to not be critical of um, like charismatic practice, but I don't want to like so far differentiate it between like normal practices of the faith that uh, sort of border on the absurd as well. I have a lot to say about this. I think that both are problematic. That's what we're trying to point out. I mean, like the idea that um, you're believing the Bible and you're a Christian and you're in the church, but you can't expect any sort of like intervention from God at all. Then it's just like this. You have to run through all of these ceremonies. You have to say all these prayers, even though God's not going to intercede at all um, in the hopes of your own salvation. It is. It's de- it's dead. It's dull. It's boring. There's no life to it. But then on the flip side, it's all fake. And and that's saying it harshly, but you know what? Like I think that like like religion can be criticized. It's not really right that religious people can criticize everything else in the world, but oh, well, don't criticize my religion. I mean, Christopher Hitchens uh, really made that point very strong, and it really struck me hearing him say that. It it really hit home. It was like, yeah, why is it off limits to criticize these things? I mean, you know how much damage has been done from the charismatic movement telling people with sick children or sick parents or whoever that, oh, they don't have enough faith. That's why they died. Or that's why they're sick. And I just think that is one of the most disgusting things um, in religion in general. And yeah, um, it deserves to be criticized, in my opinion. Yeah, I think Hitchens, I, I want to say it was Hitchens, said something about like, you know, you don't see faith healers like going to the hospital to heal people. 
<laughs> they always make you come to like their you know events um yeah i mean it's it's heartbreaking like there there was a couple that brought their infant child that died on ice to a church in florida where they alleged to have been raising people from the dead and shockingly the child was not raised from the dead and like the grief was compounded in those people i mean i also think that it's like this whole idea of like a spiritual experience so like if you don't have that experience, if you don't have that emotional, spiritual experience, then, like, are you supposed to doubt that your faith is genuine? Because I think that happens often, too. Oh, that Even happens just on, a like, a lower scale. Like, I never felt like, like, I'm just not, I was not an emotionally, like, I wasn't the type of person that was moved in, like, the songs during worship or, like, you know, I was much more... Well, the spirit um, just wasn't moving in you. Yeah, so I guess I was just spiritually dead the whole time. I mean, that's like maybe that's true. Both of the dichotomies are are really troubling, and I think like the thing that your pastor said about um, not expecting God to answer prayer, like on the one hand, is like a more of a like it can at least not leave you with like false expectations, but it's also like letting the doctrine get ahead of like what the Bible actually says, because, yeah, if you have a doctrine of an eternal and movable God who's, like, ordained, like, uh, every blade of grass to blow in the wind from, like, the beginning of eternity to now in order to, like, fulfill his purposes, then, yeah, your prayer's not going to move him. He's already got his plan devised. Like, he <laughs> knows whether you're going to pray or not pray. But that doesn't really seem to fit with me um, what the text actually says about prayer, where it does seem to move God. I mean, there's certainly places in the Bible where people even change God's mind in the Old Testament, um, uh, and we can talk about how that's from a different era and a different understanding of God and a different source, whatever's the reason. Um, but Ben, I feel like you're falling into the trap of thinking the Bible just says one thing. Well, yeah, that's I mean, true, too. I mean, th remember, my church was Calvinist, so, you know, they believed exactly that, that, like, it was basically said at the beginning of time, God ordained everything, and it's it's all just playing out, and there's nothing anybody can do to change it. And you know what? There's passages in the Bible that basically say that. But you're absolutely right. There's also passages in the Bible that talk about how you should, like, plead to God, how, like, you can, like, that Jesus will intercede for you and that you can go, you can continually go to God to, to ask for these things. And there should be some expectation that you will get it. But people who pray don't have, Christians, believers, don't have, like, a higher success rate of healing than anybody else. Um, there's no evidence to show any of this is true. And I think that like the position that my pastor had you know, and the Calvinist position, it's almost like I said, it's a little bit of a pragmatic approach that says, well, we're not seeing this anymore. So we must, it just must be done. And, um, but yeah, that's problematic. Like it's all problematic. All these different views that these various Christian groups have, um, have their own issues. Yeah, I mean, it get it gets God off the hook for like why there's no more miracles. Like, there's just no more miracles. So it's not that I don't care or can't do it. It's just there's no more. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, it, it doesn't align with like this supernatural being that we see in the text that's like doing all this stuff. Um, yeah, I think like, you know, part of what we want, I think part of like, and maybe this doesn't get across clearly, I think if anybody is presenting you with like some sort of uh, unified theology that they say is from the Bible, proceed with extreme skepticism because their theology is not going to be consistent because the Bible's not consistent. The Bible's a bunch of different books. And even if someone says they have a Pauline theology, well, are you taking the pseudo-Pauline theology and mixing it with the Pauline theology? Like, it's very complicated to say anything that the Bible actually claims um, because the Bible claims a lot of different things, and I think that's part of what we're trying to flush well, out. Well, not to mention, uh, Ben, sure. that even if you say I have a Pauline uh, theology, and if you say, okay, I, and only the genuine letters of Paul, which no Christian actually would say that because they basically hold all the letters are genuine, but let's assume they had a very like progressive spirit and they said, I'm, I, I believe only in the uh, legitimate letters of Paul, you still have a problem because those are super confusing and you have scholars debate. Like Ben and I were talking a lot about doing an episode about what did Paul mean by the resurrection? Is he talking about a bodily resurrection um, or is he talking about a spiritual resurrection? And scholars are all over the map on this question, just trying to figure out what Paul's talking about because it's super confusing. And 
it would so it, it Ben's absolutely right. Trying to derive one theology that you're super confident in just by reading the Bible um, is going to get you to a lot of problems because the Bible says a lot of different things and it says a lot of ambiguous things and it says a lot of confusing things. And to hear more about that, go back and listen to our Bible Blunders and the Church Divided series. But Ben, I thought uh, it might be fun to go through um, some of these spiritual gifts individually and, um, and talk about what uh, charismatics to this day believe. Let's do that. Okay, so the way it's divided typically is um, in three different sections. So you have revelation gifts, power gifts, and speaking gifts. So let's start with the revelation gifts. And this comes from a website called faithisland.org. It's a Christian um, site that uh, just kind of lays out like, and I think it does a good job of like just laying out pretty typically what like a, a, a general belief of what charismatics believe. So the gift of wisdom. Individuals with this gift have the ability to make wise decisions and to advise others similarly. The wisdom isn't just from trial and error their own lives, but through supernatural understanding from God. They see clearly through confusing circumstances and direct themselves and others toward God's will and direction, closely adhering to the word of God, of course. And then there's also the gift of knowledge, which when I read these, I really had a hard time differentiating. I know the difference between wisdom and knowledge, but um, when I, the, their definition to me was so similar. People with this gift of knowledge have a deep understanding of the will and ways of God. Personally and through scripture, supernaturally, they can discern truths about spiritual matters in order to teach or direct the church. Sometimes God gives a word of knowledge about a particular situation or person in order to protect, warn, or guide. So those are the first two, wisdom and knowledge. And um, my first question for you, Ben, is, you know, how, like, how do you know if somebody has this gift or if they're just wise or if they're supernaturally wise. Yeah, it's like I mean, a couple problems <laughs> just off the bat. There's no way that I mean, what are we talking about when I know this is a Pentecostal definition from like the modern day, but clearly like I I, I mean, I just can't let this go without saying like so clearly, if Paul is talking about these gifts being informed by Scripture, he would only be talking about Old Testament Scripture, probably the Torah. True. Um, so they're already like sort of making a jump that Paul would even have access to Scripture like we understand Scripture, which he wouldn't, like not the New Testament, obviously, and wasn't treating his own letters like they were Scripture. They were just letters of instruction to the church. Um, and... Uh, wouldn't be imagining that at thousands of years later we would still be turning to these letters as like the central guides for uh, what it is to be a Christian. Okay, that's just my little preface. Um, yeah, I don't. So it's confusing in Paul how these gifts are supernatural, um, but it does seem to be what he's implying. So like a knowledge that goes beyond just a regular knowledge and a wisdom that goes beyond just a regular wisdom. Um, as to like how exactly that plays out, um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's similar to a prophecy in a way because you're That's saying what I was going to say is like an oracle type of wisdom, like where he's speaking as it's a wisdom that didn't come from your own like um, history and uh, and knowledge. It's it was like supernaturally given to you. Um, that's I guess what it's saying here. Yeah, and I just wonder. Like, so we don't have access to, I mean, this, a, a lot of this is probably, it's a combination of maybe things that are informed by the practice in the Corinthian church, that Paul is either, like, trying to play corrective, um, or, like, practice, like, in other churches that Paul, uh, Paul started. So it's hard to know, like, exactly where these instruction, like, or where these uh, gifts, like, what pool he's drawing from um if he's drawing really broadly just as like positive characteristics and saying they come from the spirit or if he means something it seems to me that he's like 
like people seem to differentiate between like the supernatural gifts and the non-supernatural gifts. I don't know if that's a clear uh, distinction that Paul actually makes. Um, so I do look at these as like somehow like they're supernatural. Um, I don't know if it's somebody like, do you have a word of wisdom? And somebody says their word of wisdom and like who has a word of knowledge? I don't really know how these would work out in practice, except that like the Corinthian worship practice seemed to be total chaos. I mean, to me, like the problem in general would be going forward with this is that anybody could literally claim that they have one of these. So like the next one I'm going to go to is called the discerning of spirits. So your gift is that you're able to distinguish between the spirits. But again, you could just be lying and saying that I have that gift. And like, I have the gift of distinguishing the spirits and you're, everything you're saying is bullshit. So I don't think that, um, I think like, unless there was a magic sign from heaven, some kind of supernatural, like at Pentecost, you know, like a flame appear on the heads of people so that you know this is coming from a, from a supernatural place. I think it's really problematic. Because, and I think this is what the reformers were probably running into. They, re, they recognized that if this was run amok in the church, you could have people claiming whatever they want and no real way to police it. Um, and if someone was charismatic enough or if somebody was um, you know, influential enough, they could lead away tons of people. So you can understand why. And, and by the way, we see that in the charismatic movement. You have cult leaders all the time that claim this sort of thing. And, and I think you see a lot more like, like dangerous type cults um, coming out of a, a Pentecostal type movement. So like you also could see. So one of the things Paul is responding to, I think, is like authority. Um, and I think that was a big question in the early church. Like, who's got the authority? And some places were claiming it's only the disciples of Jesus, it's James, it's Peter. Um, some people were saying, like, we follow Paul. And then even places Paul went, like, other teachers were coming and telling um, his churches to follow different practice. So I think it's like Apollos, Paul writes against. Um, and again, he, like, has his beef with Peter and, you know, his whole thing with, like, the uh, teachers, the false teachers that are telling uh, Greek Christians that they have to get circumcised. So Paul is, like, constantly fighting against authorities. And part of what's happening in Corinth is, like, the people that are speaking in tongues are saying, like, we're the authorities. Like, we're more spiritual than the rest of you. We have the best gift. And I think... Um, one of the people that I was reading on the Corinthian things, and this is just like a good thing to keep in mind as we go through the rest of these, is the Corinthian church like took some of Paul's theology and like took it to its logical conclusion. And so Paul is trying to like rein back some of that stuff. Um, it's like, I know I said we don't have to follow the law, but that doesn't mean like have sex with your relatives. Tongues are not the most, like, here, I'll give you a list of the spiritual gifts in order by importance. Tongues are, like, not the most important, because he's kind of, like, downplaying the importance of, like, the supernatural speaking in tongues. It's not even good without an interpreter. Yeah, um, but I think that's to my point, that it once you once you let this, like, supernatural yeah, exactly. stuff in, it, becomes, it can create all sorts of chaos. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, like, always what's been the problem. Like, so who, like, when you have people making all these claims... There's no way to check the authority. Like, that's what happens in, like, the LDS church. Um, that's what happens, like, oh, somebody comes along and has a new revelation. Well, like, that changes everything. And if, like, your, your guide is to go back to Scripture and it has to not violate Scripture, well, when Paul's talking, there's not even Scripture to violate. Like, if, if our Scripture is the Scripture that we're talking about. So it's like, it just creates a lot of problems. Yeah, anytime you have spiritual, supernatural stuff and people claiming authority based on it, um, it threatens the people that have other authority, and uh, it's a practice that just creates chaos. Yeah, I think in the early church, there was all kinds of problems of authority. We were reading um, the Didache, and which is an early church document. It, it uh, very narrowly um, almost became uh, canon. And if you read it, it, it really does kind of read like scripture. Um, but it actually gives some guidelines for like who to trust and not to trust. Like if a, if a prophet comes to town, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but it had verses like this. If a prophet comes to town and he stays with you one or two days, accept him, he is from God. But if he stays three days, like he's a false teacher. Um, and it had a lot of like, 
specific indications about how to discern who was a false teacher and who was not a false teacher. And by the way, some of what they said um, would have made Paul a false teacher, which I thought was ironic. But again, that was not in the Bible, but um, it does give you a lot of insight into uh, what the early church thought. Um, so some of these other gifts, now we're into the power gifts. Um, faith. Apparently, faith is a supernatural gift. It says here, this gift is different than faith unto salvation, which all believers enjoy. The gift of faith involves the supernatural ability to believe and trust God in extenuating circumstances for extraordinary results. The gift of faith often brings about incredible miracles and is closely related to the other power gifts. Uh, man, Ben, we could probably do a whole show on on that statement there, but I'll say that this is not really coming from the Bible. This is their um, like interpretation of it because the Bible just basically lists it as a gift. Um, yeah, and I think that like the Pentecostal, the like not Pentecostal, but the like faith movement, the like name it and claim it prosperity gospel faith movement, like has a very magical understanding of the way faith uh works it becomes like a magical uh it's you know it's like a a word that you can speak into uh power yeah and, <clears> and if you're uh, and if you're an unbeliever well you you don't have the gift of faith like you the, the spirit hasn't moved on you that's why yeah of course it doesn't make sense to you because this miracle hasn't happened to you yet yeah i'm curious like what if paul and when paul says faith if he's talking about, I don't even think faith is a good, I don't know if that's like the best translation or if that's a more, anyway. That's, that's why I said when I read this that we could do a whole show on this because just Paul talking about faith, I mean, that comes with a whole lot of um, very complicated uh, theology that we've talked about a lot on the show, but um, it's it certainly wouldn't be a simple thing, but it is listed as one of the gifts. Uh, but we have a bunch more to get through. Let's go. The gift of healings. And the, it says, God works through a person with this gift to heal and restore people's bodies, minds, and emotions. This person has a level of faith to believe God for healing in any situation and is willing to try even non-conventional methods if God leads. So this, to me, getting back to what I said before, I think this is pretty disgusting. There is no gift of healing. Um, no one is being healed. Uh, there was a, like a website, a popular website. I don't know if it's still around called Why Does Not Why Doesn't God Heal Amputees dot com or something to that effect. And I think it's a good question because you know the healings that people claim are always things that are either things that naturally get better um, that science is well aware of and doctors are well aware of, or it's things that are um, intangible or that can't be verified or that are that are unfalsifiable. And again, the healings that we see. Uh, in the Bible that Jesus does were done in part to, uh, in the Gospel of John especially, to declare who Jesus was. He did it as a sign. They were miracles done as signs. So if now the miracles that are happening are all things that can't be verified or are like kind of ambiguous, it's pretty obvious that um, they're not real. I just want to like again highlight, like the, the this is like a semi-magical practice too. Like um, prophesying, healing, like I think, like um, I think it's in Mark where Jesus heals the blind man with the uh, dirt, right? And he spits it, on his hands. Or it with takes the... like two times for it to yes, to exactly. go, and so like you know, this is not a instantaneous miraculous healing. Um, it sounds more like some sort of like incantation or magical practice. Um, and sometime we'll talk about a passage in Numbers that has like there's magic intermixed with. Hebrew beliefs and Christian beliefs, or the Magi visiting um, Jesus and Matthew. And and these are like magical practices. Like, you know, I don't think, I don't look at um, the healings that are being described in the Bible as being like somehow genuine and the healings that we see today being different. I think they were both like the same type of like charlatanism. Like they were the appearance of like some sort of something going on. I mean, Jim Jones from Jonestown performed healings. What he did was like he would drug old women uh, when they were sleeping and tell them that they fell and put a cast on their leg and then heal them at the next service. Tell them to get up with the cast. I mean, like people can fake healings. It's it, yeah. they, They've been able to do it. There's been healers all through history. 
Yeah, and I'm, I mean, if um, we could devise a scientific test to, to see if uh, if something has actually been healed. I mean, and I, that's why I think amputees is such a good example. Like, show me somebody who didn't have an arm that now has an arm. Um, that would be very convincing to me, but they've never been able to show it because it's not happening. Or so, we can take every claim that a healing has ever happened with the same validity. Like, if we're not going to have any type of a scientific test, then I guess, like, someone who claims, like, they were abducted by aliens can also be believed. Yeah. I mean, again, if there's no way to verify anything, um, we could just believe any claim. And that's that's the general problem I'm having. And that's what I think the great advancement of, you know, the Enlightenment was, like the scientific method. Like now we have ways to test the validity of claims. And before that, it's like, do you have faith in this leader or faith in that leader? Do you follow Apollos or do you follow Paul or do you follow Jesus? Do you, you know, or do you follow Simon Magus? Are you convinced by those claims? And I think that um, all of that is extremely problematic and you still, and and that's kind of the point we were making in our Inerrancy and Church Splits uh, series because we're talking about... Um, which argument makes the most sense to you? Like, well, everybody's kind of right, because like you can find a Bible verse to support whatever you want to believe. So the next one is speaking in tongues, and the faithisland.org says, Speaking in tongues is a gift that is assigned to unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14.22 A person with this gift will supernaturally speak an unknown language and get the attention of everyone nearby. If this gift is used in corporate setting, the message in tongues must be interpreted, which leads us to the next gift, which is the interpretation of tongues. A person with this gift of interpreting tongues has a supernatural ability to understand and explain to others the message given in tongues. The result is that God is glorified and the church is edified. But again, there's no like sign from God who has what gift. So literally, I could walk into a Pentecostal church, claim that, I uh, have the gift of interpreting and then make the person and then basically invent whatever uh, doctrine I want. Um, and then some people could believe me and some people could reject me. There's no like systems of checks and balances. That's again, that's the issue that I have with this. And I think again, not to like harp on the same point, um, but this is like Paul, this is Galatians 3, uh, three twenty eight. Paul right? 328 or 326. Um, no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Like, yeah, it creates chaos. Like you're obliterating, like the authority now is like, oh, people are all in, in people all have spiritual gifts and yeah, it's creating chaos everywhere. So now Paul is like trying to like say, listen, my theology is still right. Like, we're still free under Christ. There's still a total equality. We still all have these gifts. But let's, like, try to keep everything a little bit orderly. Let's, like, stop having sex with our with our relatives. We're not that free. You know, like, tongues are important, but they're not, like, the most important thing. Let's get everything under control. And then, like, after Paul dies by Ephesians, it's like, no, it's not the people that are speaking in tongues that are the authorities. It's the bishops and elders. And because... That only works for so long. Like, there's only so long that you can have chaos with everyone claiming authority before, like, somebody has to step in. So now it's Peter's the Pope, and he's got the keys to the kingdom. <clears throat> and, you know, this is just, like, a little time after Paul that this stuff starts to become in inscribed. Yeah, and to your point, Ben, I mean, this is the whole reason that the letters of Paul became such a huge thing in the church, because it says, this is coming from the Apostle Paul. This is authoritative. And what do you know? We start seeing forgeries in the name of Paul, forgeries in the name of Peter, because they're all claiming that authority. And even 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13... If it's a interpolation, it's probably an early interpolation. It's yes. probably earlier than like the yeah forgeries. because we, yeah. And I'm not aware in the manuscript tradition of any manuscripts that doesn't that don't contain it. So yeah, I uh, think it's just from textual analysis that they say that they yes. think Paul didn't write it. And so like um, that's sort of like a softer first interpret like a, a softer first. Look, the spiritual gifts are great, but love is really the most important thing. Right. So everybody's running damage control on the chaos that's happening because of these spiritual gifts. And you know what? It's still like that in the charismatic churches today. It because like the less structured and authority that is like 
maintained over these spiritual gifts. Like every time a revival breaks out, oh, what do you know? Like crazy things start happening. People are barking like dogs or clapping in the spirit or jumping around and being crazy or some prophet is prophesying some weird thing or someone thinks that God is telling them that of the impending apocalypse or that he's returning soon or that some of the members of the church are demons or a generation later, some sort of like strong authority comes in and like uh reigns in all of that practice um okay so the last two i put these together so the working of miracles and prophecy uh the working of miracles belongs under the power gifts category and prophecy belongs under the speaking gifts but i put them together to highlight something so uh, according to this website a person with the gift of miracles can be used by God to do any type of creative miracle from using physical strength to move a car to regenerating a body part to affecting the, to affecting the weather. There is no limit to what God can do, and the person with this spiritual gift has the faith to believe God for anything. So, Ben, if I had to choose, like, I would want the gift of miracles. Uh, because it that's like sounds like you're one of the X-Men. Yeah, I mean, it's like a total superpower. These are all superpowers, by the way. But um, this one, I mean, any creative miracle, uh, physical strength, moving cars, regenerating body parts, affecting the weather. I mean, right there, physical strength. So you have like Superman um, regenerating body parts. I I mean, there's got to be a superhero that does that. Affecting the weather. I mean, Storm in the X-Men, like you said. Um, so yeah, it's like just you're like a whole like superhero <laughs> team like all wrapped up into one. Um, but again, it's, we don't actually see that in real life. It's literally yeah, you're like one of the Avengers. Like like nothing, nothing is a barrier for you. You can control all physical realms. If you want to stop time, you can stop time. Like wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah, you're like Thanos with all the Infinity Stones. <laughs> yeah, like, like why hasn't more people gotten this gift throughout time? Like, I would go back in time and kill Hitler. <laughs> if like nothing, yeah. like, forget about like healing that one kid at a at a revival service, that kid in a wheelchair. I would go back in time and kill Hitler and save like you know millions of people's lives. Yeah, but if you were a charismatic Christian, you might just uh, try to turn gay people straight. I would probably just make my coat enchanted and then throw that at crowds, knocking them over for my own amusement. Right. Well, that we do see. Yeah. Uh, but and then so I'm contrasting that to the last one, which is the gift of prophecy. And and listen to the difference, the way they describe this prophecy. Believers with this gift of prophecy don't necessarily tell the future as much as they build up, encourage, and redirect the church body. They help the church understand the heart and desires of God and urge the church to wholeheartedly pursue God and holiness. What? I mean, the working of miracles, you're Thanos with all the Infinity Stones. And if you have the gift of prophecy, you can't even tell the future. Way to wimp out on the gift. Like, they oversold everything but the <laughs> gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy, like, wow, <laughs> You can't do anything. You can't even tell the future. You like, the gift, guy, the, with the, guy, the gift of miracles guy is like, hey, <laughs> I want to tell the future. And the prophecy guy is like, what the fuck? I don't get it. Like, I want to, I'm, I'm the prophet. And I can't tell the future? Um, yeah, I think that that's actually pretty hilarious because the gift of prophecy, of course, is like the most problematic probably of all the gifts. Like tongues like seem innocuous compared to the gift of prophecy and all the damage it's wrought throughout history. Um, and we talked about it in our like expectation of the apocalypse and like the future predictors. And that was basically people just analyzing the text forget about all the people that have had like divine revelations about the future and the end that's that list is longer than we could possibly ever probably go through in a hundred episodes um but uh yeah that's certainly not what what i think that the prophets of today are claiming they definitely do claim that they've been like claimed by charismatics that jesus was coming back at this certain year or he was going to make appearances on the earth at this revival ceremony uh this or the tent revival or you know revival service and um so uh, it's interesting that they, they yeah i was wondering so much yeah, I'm I'm wondering why they downplay it too because again the the miracles it's so uh 
the gift of miracles, you have so much power. And then the prophecy, they just t- pulled the rug right out from under those prophets. But I think that like maybe the church has been burned so many times by by prophets. Like going back to Jesus, by the way, if you want to uh, go back and listen to our last episodes about how Jesus predicted that his own return would happen during the lifetime of his followers, and it didn't happen. And then there's been prophet after prophet after prophet through the entire history of Christianity that were claiming um, the second coming, as well as other predictions, that they've all been wrong. They have a 100% fail record. So maybe that's why they're like, whoa, 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 the prophecy here, we're not going <laughs> to... The, the, the prophets just encouraged the church. Yeah, there was definitely a redaction after the first version of the prophecy. They're like, can we tone this down a little bit before we put it up on the website? And what does this uh, even mean? They supernaturally encourage the church. It's like, that's total BS. Like, I, I mean, the it sounds like the gift of knowledge and the gift of wisdom are more supernaturally, like, yeah. like you have more supernatural. And like the gift of, like you said, the gift of miracles, there's like no constraint. So why have why not just give everyone the gift of miracles and we could all just do, you know, is it Second uh, Thessalonians where uh, pseudo Paul talks about the super apostles? Yeah. I guess this must be what he's talking about the super apostles um, because they actually have superpowers. Like this is I I think that this is so far beyond. Um, I mean, again, I think that the text itself is saying yes, you will have superpowers small s but not that you'll be able to like do thanos type stuff from avengers well again it's not clear so i mean um i'm reading through some of the comments on this site and um it's all christians that are saying how uh, how uplifting this is but this one person says um different different gifts and same spirit each believer has a gift and when the gifts are used correctly it will bring unity to the believers so that's interesting because when you read in first corinthians it does almost seem like paul is saying like everybody has one of these gifts and um so that's really a question i know that like growing up in a i went to a christian high school where um a lot of Pentecostals and Charismatics were there. And then, so when they would have like a, a chapel service and they would be doing altar calls and they would be doing uh, more spiritual gifts type presentations, um, it was always me and, and just a few other people that were not in like a Pentecostal church that were just like left sitting there by themselves or everyone else was like standing up and engaging because we were like, we don't believe in any of this stuff. Um and I think, like, I, I made this point in the uh, other series where we talked about this, but I think it's really fascinating how you have, like, you know, I don't know what the percentage breakdown in America of evangelicals about how many of them are charismatics versus how many of them are, like, I guess, more reformed or less and don't believe that the spiritual gifts are happening. But it's such, it's really is a major divide because like half the church is like, yeah, like when they're like speaking in tongues, I think that's all bullshit. Like we don't think that the spirit is actually moving. And I've even heard in my church people say, yeah, it must be demons. Like it must be Satan that's actually um, doing those. Like they won't necessarily discount the um, the miracles or the or the supernatural events. Most will, but some will be like, no, I think it is supernatural, but it's coming from demons. So um, talk about a divide within the church. I feel like they really like the evangelical church really needs to iron this one out. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I thought it was humorous. <clears throat> under the definition of tongues that it was like, this is a sign for unbelievers because they'll be so amazed when they hear people babbling a bunch of nonsense. Like, in, like can you imagine that? Like, let's amaze the non-believers with our speaking in tongues. No, I think um, that there's nothing that... Yeah, um, they would be like, these people are, like, they're all crazy. No, I think one of the number one things that people mock, you know, American Christians for is, you know, the some of these, like gifts of the spirit services where you see the speaking in tongues and the healings and it's it always devolves into uh just like a total shit show yeah it doesn't seem to be what uh paul is talking about in the text like that it's there to amaze non-believers now maybe that's in acts but that's different like i said than i think what paul is talking about in first corinthians so i would uh, be impressed um with miracles like the gift of miracle, if someone could do some supernatural feat, like summon a tornado, it says they can control the weather. And, um, or even the speaking in tongues, if somebody could speak in tongues in the way it was described in the book of Acts, where um, 
they can just like speak any language off the top of their head to to foreigners that would understand them that would be impressive um but again all like the examples of what they're actually doing are just like like you said like charlatan parlor tricks and they're not persuasive maybe they're persuasive to other charismatics they're not persuasive to me at all i mean i don't look at that and and think um it's convincing yeah i don't go to a magic show and leave believing in magic I just think like the magician does a really good job. Yeah, and the magician Um, does a much better job, by the way, than the charismatic preachers. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's also interesting that so Paul like is is using the gifts of the spirit to lead into a discussion about the body of Christ and um, spiritual bodies. And so I think that like it's funny that so much I mean it's a lot that it's a lot of ink that he spends on the spiritual gifts because it's a problem. I think it's three chapters if you count uh, chapter 13, the uh, later edition. Um, so that's a lot what he talks about. It's almost as much as he spends talking about the law. Um, but uh, it's it's interesting because he pivots to, like how these gifts are supposed to edify the body of Christ and how like each member's gift signifies it's like parts of a body. And, you know, the parts of the body, uh, they may be like a, a hierarchy, but at the same time, they're all there's a unity in the body. And so we're all unified and equal in that we're part of the same body, even though we have these different gifts that may like, you know, some may be more important or, or whatever. Um, but it's like, it seems to me that Christians never get to that part. Like they never get to the part where it's like, oh yeah, this whole thing is supposed to like just edify us and unify us in the body of Christ. Instead, it's like, let's divide into a thousand churches so we can all be comfortable in how we want to practice worship. Um, And the ones that want to believe a certain way can, you know, not be confronted by ones that believe a different way. Um, Or we can like never find any type of, common belief or common ground or common unity of practice because of these things. And it's like the whole purpose of them was to show that, um, at least in Paul's rhetoric, um, to like bring believers together and edify the body. Yeah. And I don't want to, um, make it seem like we're only criticizing the charismatics here, because like we said at the beginning, in a lot of ways, the charismatics are more faithful to what the New Testament actually says. I mean, the New Testament does seem to say you should expect these type of things. Like if you truly have faith, like the Spirit will be moving in you, the Spirit lives inside you, and you should expect these type of things. And the more Orthodox Church, the Reformed Churches, um, they do seem spiritually dead um, because they are not um, experiencing anything of what was experienced in the early church according to the Apostle Paul. So, you know, it's it's really a question of, do you want to go with the absurdity of um, believing in healings and and uh, speaking in tongues, or uh, but but being more faithful to what the New Testament actually says, or do you want to just interpret away everything and have kind of a, a really dull, stale uh, religion ongoing? Again, I'm criticizing both sides because I think that um, both sides are problematic. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that it's impossible. It, I remember like trying to deal with the texts about the spiritual gifts and about miracles and being like, there's nothing that really says this stuff's supposed to stop. And like, why wouldn't people like have that same expectation? And then you run into the problem of reality where it, it's just not real. And um, yeah, I think that we should say like, unequivocally that the like miracle miraculous claims of today are false and um are the work of people that are not being honest or i mean you know i think that the teachers themselves are charlatans the people that go and and go to those services are like i think they actually earnestly believe that they could be healed which is like the real tragedy um you're you're opening up a, a big like interesting conversation i'll just say briefly that I think there's different, like I said before, I think there are absolute charlatans, and I think there are, and not just among the teachers, I think a lot of the people there are just outright faking it. And then I think there are people that get so caught up. I mean, I've seen people at rock concerts 
um, that gets so caught up in it, it's almost like they're having a spiritual experience that I think people are genuinely experiencing. So I'm not saying they're all liars and charlatans, but I think some of them are. But I also think that there's a lot of peer pressure. I know Christians very well who to this day said, yeah, they felt immense pressure when they would see their friends and everyone else in the congregation that were experiencing miraculous um, signs. So they would fake speaking in tongues too, because they didn't want to be left out and they didn't want to be looked at as like, oh, the Spirit's not moving in you. What if I'm not saved? You know, what if I don't have enough faith? And I'll come back to one more time. The most insidious form of this, I think, has to do with the healings. And when you, yeah. when you, um, you give people this idea that, well, you didn't have enough faith, that's why they died. It's really your fault that they weren't healed. It's just so despicable. Yeah, and it's it's like it is the most horrific thing. Like for someone who has no more hope to put their hope in something that is totally false, and for people to play on that uh, desperation for sometimes even for financial gain, like maybe not even sometimes, maybe oftentimes. Um, yeah, it's disgusting. Like, totally condemn that completely. Um, I also just think that, like, the practices that were going on, the speaking in tongues and stuff that were happening in the early church, or even, like, what was claimed in Acts, if that was even, like, a historical event, um, like, I don't think we should differentiate them, like, so much from, like, the practice we see today either. Like, it was, like, it was fake back then, too. You know, I mean, it's not that like they were like practicing real speaking in tongues back then and now people do it like, I mean, it's probably the same thing that was happening back then that's happening now. And it's just as like fake back then as it is now. Um, yeah, I mean, when we're talking about Pentecost, I mean, you're talking about uh, something that was written much later describing the events. And, um, you know, you have the same you have the same problems there that you do with all the Gospels about like how historic is it. Most scholars don't think that. Um, Pentecost is a historical account that actually happened. Um, it's a way, it was a way to give the disciples of Jesus after he was gone to give them some sort of authority going forward so that um, they were, like we were talking about before with authority, they were the ones that you should be turning to because look, God granted them these spiritual gifts. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, um, I think that's like really a key issue is like the issue of authority the claim of like being more spiritual because of these gifts um, was a big problem. And I think that like that problem has persisted to today. So if you have any uh, questions or comments, we'd love to hear what you think about it. Or even if it's just your own experiences um, being in the church, uh, we'd love to hear from you. And um, we're going to start putting some testimonials, if you will, on the show. So uh uh, contact us. You can email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. And um, you could always hit us up on Twitter or Reddit or Facebook. Ben, I think you had a quote. When we read these letters today, we do so with purposes Paul never imagined and may grant them an importance they never enjoyed in Paul's own day. They are our primary source for understanding Paul, but that was not true for Paul's first readers, for whom he was not a biblical author to be interpreted. The possibility of reading the letters anachronistically inevitably increases when they are incorporated into modern worship as scripture. Neil Elliott. Thanks, Ben. Have a good night, everyone. The Skeptic's Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at skepticsproject. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. Ooh.